Welcome to the Armani Talks podcast. I'm your host, Armani Talks. In this podcast, I'm helping you level up your communication skills every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If you're new to the channel, be sure to stay updated with the latest videos and content on public speaking, social skills, writing skills, along with other topics to help you level up. Today, we're back for Unapologetic Truths, episode eight with Harsh Strongman, Life Math Money. Welcome back. Hey, Arman, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. There was this uh, technical issues we had leading up, so it's a miracle that we're able to make this episode happen today. Yeah, so we'll have to do today a bit shorter than what we usually do because we ran out of time fixing the whole technical thing. Yeah, man, and that's what happens when you're creating at this point where you can't ever expect fully what's going to happen. So it's one of those things where you're learning on the fly. Well, it's something you have to expect, really, because not everyone, every day will be perfect. And every once in a while, especially now that we're all online and doing this on the fly, working from home, something is bound to go wrong every once in a while. You just have to accept it. It is the cost of doing things this way. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've noticed with different fields where when you expect a field to be pretty rigid, where it's you do X, Y, and you get one, two, it's not always the case. And I was reading this book recently called 11 Rings by Phil Jackson. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Does it have anything to do with the book of five rings? No, I don't think so. Uh, even though this guy has 11 rings and he's basically uh, a successful basketball coach who talks about what it takes to win. And one of the profound uh, takeaways that he gave me in that book was that he said one of the toughest times to be a leader is right after you won a championship. And that's something that uh, people from the outside wouldn't expect. They would think right after you won a championship, it should be the easiest because you already figured out what to do. Just do it again. But he was talking about how the players who had to use teamwork in order to win that championship start to become more egotistical after they won. Now they start to think, oh, it was because of me that we won. You guys couldn't have to do it without me. And more of them start to get publicity, which makes them more egotistical. And in the book, he was basically talking about workarounds on how to manage the egos, especially after they win, so they can win another one. It's a great read. I recommend you check it out. Mm, so you're saying that these guys, after they win, they attribute the success to themselves and they think that they should be the leader or they're calling the shots now. Absolutely. And in a logical world, that's not what you're going to expect. But No, I think that is what you would expect. Because, yeah, if you take basketball or any sport, all the people who are playing are men and they are very high in testosterone. That's how they became great athletes. Or, you know, at least it was a factor. And you would bound to, you're bound to think that these guys will want to be the pack of leader of the pack themselves. So I would say it's what you would expect. Although I would like to hear what his opinions are on how you actually be a great leader after such a situation. Yeah, so what he said in that regards is that, I know you haven't heard these names, but I'm going to bring it up. Um, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, where he said that playing great 
is not enough. Eventually, as a leader, what you have to do is be a remote controller for controlling other people's emotions and ambitions. And this is where, when you're too great in a field, you can struggle to empathize with someone. So Phil Jackson, the coach, he challenged the leaders of his team, who were the best players, to bring themselves down to the other players' levels so they humanize themselves. And by humanizing themselves, they could relate to these average players more, and then they could empathize. So Phil Jackson was basically saying that the key to leadership is empathy skills and remaining in the present moment. They call him the Zen master because he keeps talking about uh, Zen Buddhism and meditation practices. Uh, you wouldn't expect this in a competitive sport like a basketball, which most of the coaches found ridiculous at the time at uh, doing meditation practices. But when he was bringing it in, it allowed the egos to become unified into a team. You see what I'm saying? So that's what his biggest takeaway is. You got to use empathy and you got to make yourself relatable. Hmm. I've heard of Do a you... story that goes something like this. So there's this guy and he's watching a bunch of lumberjacks at work. Lumberjacks are the people that cut the wood and, you know, make them into chopped blocks. And he asks one of the guys, what are you doing? And the guy says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm cutting wood. I'm a lumberjack. And mm -hmm. he sees another lumberjack there. And this guy, the other guy, he's cutting his wood at twice the rate. He seems very enthusiastic and motivated. And all of his blocks are perfect. He's really working hard at his job. So he, this guy who's watching him cut the wood so well and so fast, he goes up to the lumberjack and then asks him, what are you doing? And the lumberjack, this, this lumberjack says, I'm building a cathedral for my God. And I think that a bigger sense of purpose than what you're actually doing definitely mm, helps okay. motivate. And I think that is something a leader should cultivate in his people. So instead of a leader telling everyone that, hey, you guys are lumberjacks, you're cutting wood, you have to give them a bigger purpose. You're making something for God. And that is going to make them work harder, better, and they're going to enjoy their work. They're going to feel fulfilled. I think there's a much shorter quote on this I've seen on Twitter a couple of times that don't bark orders at the men, teach them to yearn for the sea. Uh, this is this relates to building a boat. So there's the context. So these guys are building a boat and the leader should not right. tell them, do this, this, this. The leader should just teach them to yearn for the sea and they will make the boat themselves. Mm, that that I like because if you're not giving these people a narrative, something bigger that they're working towards, now everything they're doing is mechanical. And when it's mechanical, you could do it for so long, but eventually you're going to lose that fire. There's no soul into it. And Harsh, the reason that I was saying it was surprising that these people were becoming egotistical was because of this. The people who were the better players, guys like Michael Jordan, still wanted to maintain that team mindset. But the people who were becoming egotistical 
were the role players. So these are the guys that aren't that good. They just get plugged into the system. And for the first time in their lives, they're seeing that championship essence. So they're not knowing how to deal with it. So I think that actually ties with what you were saying, where you got to give these people a narrative to tame them back in. Do you ever have one of those moments, Harsh, when uh, I don't know how you run Life Math Money. Are, the, are there some people that work for you routinely or are they pretty much freelancers? There are a lot of contractors and freelancers who work for me. Okay. So I think it's a little different versus someone who's on your payroll for a full-time job. But when they taste success for the first time, it's easy for them to want more of it and lose track of the bigger vision. So that's one of the things that a leader needs to do. Give them that narrative that works for them rather than just isolated acts. Hmm. Another... Know, as a tangent, I'll... go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, go ahead. Let's see what this tangent is about. As a tangent, I remember when I was much younger, my father telling me a story about people in the mafia and how they work. Apparently, this is something he had heard from someone else. And he was telling me that people on the higher levels of mafias, they don't tend to be very aggressive and in your face. But the guys at the lower levels, they tend to really feel powerful because they're working for some mafia and they feel like they're, they have control over you and other people who are normal, not in the mafia. And there's a Hindi saying, and I'll translate it. And the saying goes like, are you familiar with what khichdi is? Yeah, man, I love khichdi. Okay, so the saying is that the pot of khichdi gets hotter much faster than the actual khichdi. In the sense that the utensil you're cooking in is hotter than the actual dish. So the mm. guys on the outside who are not exactly a part of the main dish, but they're just there to help. They're on the lower levels. These guys get more aggressive, more egotistical, and they get the feeling of being very important much, much faster than the people at the top who are relatively more calm, composed, and don't tend to be super um, tactless and blunt. Right. And what would you as a leader do about that? Basically make these lower workers understand their role in the company? I don't know. I think it would depend on the context. I don't have an upfront answer to this. I would say that if people were being too egotistical, you you can't go and destroy their ego immediately because then they're going to start resenting you. So I'm not sure. Maybe depending on the person's temperament, you might give them a talking to or some people you might just have to fire if they're being too aggressive and not listening to you. Mm -hmm. But I'm not fully sure how to deal with this here. I, I don't want to just say something random when I'm not really aware of it. Yeah. And I want to talk about another guy, uh, Henry Ford. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, he's a car maker. Yeah. So he had a good workaround towards this. So one thing that he didn't like too much was creating too many job titles. So in his company, as it was growing, he didn't want these different positions out there like a 
vice president, assistant vice president, senior manager, blah, blah, blah. Mainly because when you have too many of these labels, people start to work for the labels rather than the actual product, which is the cars. So one little trick that he would do was call different people partners. It doesn't matter if you're on the top of the company where you're a decision maker or you're one of the labor who has to work with your hands. You are referred to as a partner. So it builds that camaraderie and it prevents you from working for a certain label and allows you to work for the job. So I think that's one of the bigger deals out there. And one of the episodes we were doing earlier, we talked about the UFC. And I believe the president of the UFC, Dana White, is doing a good job with that, where he's making it about the advancement of the sport of fighting. That's why the UFC is growing so rapidly. Hmm, that's interesting. You, you said you watch fighting, right? I watch some clips on YouTube every once in a while when they show up in my recommended. I don't really mm-hmm. know anything about the people who manage it or how it actually works. I got interested in it when I started learning how to box and I found it interesting to see that these guys knew so much about that. And I remember reading something about their weight classes and everything. So what these guys were doing is that to remain in a particular weight class, but still be stronger than everyone, they would actually be much heavier than the weight class. But a day before their actual fight, when they're weighed in, so they're not weighed in right before the fight. They're weighed in one day before. So what they would do is they would essentially take medicines to dehydrate their bodies and lose like kilos of water and then use that lower dehydrated body to weigh in and then rehydrate themselves just the day before their fight. (laughs) Gain it all back. Yeah, gain all the water back so that they're strong again. So I was reading about that and that got me interested into watching some of these fights. I think some guy died or I don't know, had some serious issues because he didn't have a real doctor to help him do the rehydration. So he did. Mm-hmm. He, he lost out on a lot of the bodily salts as he was just pissing away. And then when he was drinking the water again, I, I don't think he put in all the salts back. So there was some imbalance mm-hmm. in his body. I don't fully remember who the guy was though. The president of UFC, he's trying to make the UFC as big as soccer. And the thing in the US is that I don't think in the US we can perceive how big soccer is globally, where you guys actually call it football. And so <laughs> it's actually disrespectful when I'm overseas and I'm calling it soccer. They're like, no, this is called football. Wait, what you guys do. Talking about the regular game, right? You kick the ball, there's a goal, football. Yeah, so that's called football, but in the U.S. we call it soccer. What? And we have another game. Yeah, we have another game called football. Oh, I American think I football. Know what you're talking about? There's a rugby ball they use and they run into each other. Yeah, it's kind of like rugby. I've heard of it. I've never seen a match or anything though. Yeah, it's funny because American football doesn't really use the foot too much, so you would think that we just keep calling football football instead of soccer but it's a little confusing like that Mm -hmm. but go ahead tell me about the ufc thing well dana white wants to make the ufc as big as soccer 
Because when you think about it, Harsh, something's primal about fighting. It doesn't require you to learn too many different rules and understand how the game works. There's something primal within people. When they see fighting, they immediately understand. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, but I would say that's more of a masculine thing. I don't think women care. I think men want to see other people fight. And it's something that we've been doing forever. You know, we had gladiator pits 2,000 years ago. People were always fighting and people wanted to watch other people fight. There's mm-hmm. a thrill there that you can't explain. And I know women don't get it, okay? So all the girls that <laughs> I know, they don't understand why men enjoy it. They find it stupid, but we get it. So there is a women's division at UFC. I wonder if men mainly watch that division. I would say it's mostly men, but I'm not very well informed about the whole audience that they have. But I would wager that it's mostly men. Right. Interesting. But do you ever see uh, a sport like fighting becoming the top sport, even though you don't watch too many sports? Or do you think soccer is here to stay? How big was boxing? Boxing was big, I would say, more in the 70s and 80s. No, but how Nowadays, big was it bigger than soccer? Man, it's difficult to compare because one is more organized, while boxing isn't that organized. I wouldn't say it was big as soccer, though. I believe soccer was the biggest. How big is Muay Thai in Thailand? Is it? Does everyone watch Muay Thai? I don't think people watch it there, do they? I think they participate in it, but I don't think they understand the entertainment side of it as well. Where Dana White is great at that. He was quoted saying, we don't sell fights. We actually make money on the content. So people don't really care about the fights in general. They care about the documentaries leading up to the fight, the buildup, the trash talk, and the fight is just cherry on the cake. So this guy is a great business mind. Hmm. I'm not sure whether fighting can be as big as a game like soccer because fighting is not for everyone. It's not, it's not something that everyone enjoys. It's something that a gr- good part of men enjoy, but it's not for everyone. And secondly, you know, when you play soccer, like everyone has played football, soccer, okay? Everyone's done that as a kid. But only a small fraction of people have trained, have been trained to fight or have learned any martial art. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not fully sure whether, I do, I'm not convinced by the idea that UFC would be as big as soccer is. But it could mm-hmm. be. It can be. I, I would say that there's a very strong network effect to these things. For example, if you take India, cricket is very popular in India. and the reason why everyone watches cricket is that, for example, let's say that you watch cricket. And what are you going to teach your son? Well, you're going to teach him to watch cricket. So he's going to grow up liking cricket. And he's going to have memories of that game with you, his father, as a kid. So he's always going to enjoy playing and watching cricket. And of course, he's going to be playing cricket as a kid as well. But with boxing, since no one already, no one in India, at least that I know, watches boxing, there are no children watching boxing and most kids, like 99.99999% of kids have never, are never going to learn boxing. They're never going to wear a glove and punch someone. So mm-hmm. the chances that they become interested in boxing are really low. So 
it's inter- and I'm not fully convinced by the argument that UFC is going to blow up and be like soccer, but I think it has a pretty good niche for it. And I think it's a growing sport. Right, Harsh. And another reason that I could see that happening down the line is mainly because of politics as well, where normally American football and basketball were the kingpins. But after the past two to three years, they got so involved in politics where let's say you're having a long day, you just want to turn on the game and watch some games. You're being shoved with all these political messages where it gets annoying after a while. I just want to watch the game and call it a day. And along what with other consumers, messages? I mean, uh, you know, different people kneeling, different people like Black Lives Matter at the, uh, you know, when Trump was president, people talking out against the president, which is fine every now and then. Wait, aren't but, most athletes black there? Like, I've, I've seen like videos of American athletes and I think all of them are black people. At least on Twitter, that's how they show it. Like all the basketball people are black. Yeah, I would say most people in the NBA are African-Americans black. So they're Nowadays, doing the whole Black Lives Matter thing there? Yeah, along with other political messages. And what happened with the UFC was they weren't leaning towards one favor. If fighters wanted to express political opinions, they can. But it wasn't being shoved down the audience's face. It was predominantly the fight that was the centerfold. But I would say a year or two ago, basketball and football, along with other sports, were so into politics that it was hurting their brand. They were isolating one group for another group. And sports is capable of uniting people. But instead, they became divisive. And they were their ratings were plumbing, plummeting. And that's when I saw from the business side of it, if UFC can capitalize and keep doing what it's doing, focus even more on the content, then they have a shot in the future. See, at the end of the day, these guys are not in the fighting business or the football business. They are in the entertainment business. So if it's not mm. entertaining, they're, they're not doing it right. And by making it a whole political thing where you're alienating people and you're telling one half of people that you're killing all the blacks and you know, like you're basically not entertaining people anymore. It's like, you right. know, have you seen these comedians sometimes where they just give you a political lecture? Like I did not pay money to hear a political lecture. I came here to <laughs> listen to jokes and to laugh. So tell me jokes, bitch. <laughs> or give me did my money hear, back. Did you hear about what's happening with Dave Chappelle recently? I know who Dave Chappelle is, but I don't know what's happening to him. He made those two oh. two things. I remember I, the guy about he had this interesting joke where there's a police woman, uh, there's a policeman, and uh, should I forgot the joke? Never mind. I know who Dave Chappelle is. Yeah, I believe he did a Netflix special recently where he, he made some transphobic jokes, and since then there's been this huge black backlash from the trans community in Netflix where a few of the trans uh, workers there organized a walkout. And the CEO of the Netflix uh, company said that he, he was apologetic about the matter, but he wasn't removing Dave Chappelle's special. So this has been ca- causing some controversy. And what is 
transphobic week. What does that mean? So I haven't watched this special, dude. I'm probably going to watch it later this week. I've been pretty busy, but I just heard something along those lines that he said some comments offensive to uh, trans people. I, I think don't that's know what the jokes stupid are. on Netflix part to apologize for it because the moment you apologize for it, you invite more of these mobs. Okay, so today you will remove one guy's episode for something he said. Tomorrow, there's, you'll say something that's more innocent, but these guys will still get mad because that's the only thing they have to do. And then what will you do? You'll remove another episode, then you'll do something more, more, more. And at the end of the day, you will end up becoming something stupid like Facebook. I'm 99.5% sure that Dave Chappelle is not going to apologize. Just knowing the kind of guy that he is, like, he's pretty firm in his principles. a really bad move for him to apologize. Like, personally, I get... All these mobs all the time. I have never apologized and it just nothing happens. And if I've ever said anything transphobic and there's a trans person who's mad about it, they can go fuck themselves. I don't care. Like, what are you going to do? If you want to do a walkout, do a walkout. Like, do you not? How does that affect me? Right. And I don't know about uh, where you're from, Harsh, but in the where I'm from, at least with comedians, that was one of those groups of people that you normally let them do what they wanted to do. At least I would say when I was first moving here, I mean, Eddie Murphy, Chris Tucker, Chris Rock, these guys were doing some serious jokes back in the days before cancel culture. And with comedians, you just stayed away from their lane. But nowadays, people are taking offense to their jokes. No, see, and, the thing is that all of these cancel culture people only have power because the person who's getting canceled lets himself be canceled. If you don't let yourself be canceled, they have no power. Like, what are they going to do? They're going to do a protest, but who cares? They're not your customers anyway. Like, were these guys giving Dave Chappelle mm-hmm. lots of money for listening to his uh, whatever Netflix special? And is suddenly Dave Chappelle going broke? No. So if Dave Chappelle stops making these jokes, which these guys don't like, what advantage would occur to him? Nothing. So screw them. Right. And it sets a, it sets a bad precedent for the future where nowadays, anytime him as a comedian, he's thinking of some jokes. He's like, oh, wait, I can't say this because it may offend a group of people. But the thing with comedians, Harsh, is that they pretty much get paid to offend people when you think about it. See, I don't think there's any reason to draw the line at comedians themselves. I think it extends to everybody. You and I are free to say anything we want, just as the comedian is. The comedian is not special and neither are these trans people. They don't get to decide what I can say, what you can say, or what anyone else can say. If they don't like it, they don't like it. That's their problem. They have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Do you watch any comedians or you normally don't? I do watch random clips on YouTube and that's because watching comedy is good for the soul and it also makes you funnier. You know, when you're out, then you have some jokes in your head that you can use and make people laugh, connect more. So it has uses for your social skills. Mm-hmm. You have a favorite comedian? Uh, I don't have any favorite comedian or I just listen to these random, like I'll just Google comedy show on YouTube. 
and then I'll just listen to whatever comes up. Usually mm-hmm. when I'm eating or something. I do know some popular yeah. names though. There's some guy called Louis C.K. and I I know of Dave Chappelle. There's some German guy who gets heckled a lot. German guy. Uh, Steve mm-hmm. Hofstadter or something. Okay. And there's this Indian guy whose name I also forgot. Russell Peters. Yeah, that Russell oh, Peters. Oh yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah, pretty funny. I was having this conversation with one of my friends where your background also will indicate to you which comedian you'll find funny. Like for me personally, I find guys like Russell Peters funny. And have you ever heard of George Lopez? I have heard of some Lopez who's a singer. Okay, you're probably talking about Jennifer Lopez. But George Lopez, I find him hilarious. But one of the reasons why I find him hilarious is because he's from the Spanish background. And I notice a lot of the Spanish upbringing jokes that he has resonates with me as a Daisy person, where a Spanish a mom will, you know, make certain jokes or have certain material that a Daisy person will have. So it really depends on your background, which will indicate which kind of comedians you find funny or which ones are completely falling flat. Hmm. This is a Spanish comedian and like, I, I think his name is, he's called Fluffy. I don't know his name. Is he a fat dude? Yeah, he's a fat dude. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. He's funny. I don't remember his name though. Um, like they, he, there's yes. a video called The Racist Gift Basket. I think that's the guy. Right. And it is something that we're, um, it is something that's great that we're talking about, Harsh, because I mean, I was having this conversation with my friends. Where is it too much for a comedian to draw the line? And basically for you, you're like, there is no line. There is no line. See, anywhere you draw the line, well, how do you decide that? And anytime you do draw a line, then it's no longer free speech. Then then these people will keep pushing that line. So today, this joke is offensive. Tomorrow, this is also offensive. And this is what they've done, you know, in the past 10 years. Like 10 years ago, calling someone a faggot would not get you fired. It used to not be polite, but it wasn't like not, it wasn't something that was beyond what people would say. And nowadays, just when you're talking about, let's say you make a comment about someone who's gay, 99% of people will instinctively say something like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, it's perfectly okay. Oh, it's perfectly okay to be gay. And over time, it looks like this line of what you can speak has reduced a lot. And if you're some guy who just works a job and, you know, you have a big corporate employer, you have to follow that line because if you don't, these guys will get you fired. So that line actually exists and this line is enforced. And this line is getting smaller and smaller day by day. So earlier you could say things like, China made the virus and then it was suddenly racist and you would become a conspiracy theorist if you said that. So this line of what you can say is slowly shrinking. And I think it's up to you, you know, if you want to preserve your ability to speak, you have to be willing to take some blowback. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's happening, Harsh, 
is shadow banning. Have you heard of that concept? Yes, I have heard of it. So I, I was following this account on oh, Instagram. By the way, for people who don't know what shadow banning is, it's when they don't ban your account, but they just make you invisible to everyone. So you're basically making content for people in the void. Like there's no one listening to you, but you will not know that. Yeah, so there's this account, I believe his Instagram is real Mike Dillard. And one of my friends told me to initially follow him because he great, gives great marketing tips. So I ended up following him and I noticed he speaks about a lot of political stuff. And as more time is going on by, I noticed that he's making a post that is saying that a lot of people are copying his account. They're using the same exact picture. They're taking the same exact uh, Instagram posts, everything. And those fake accounts get recommended before the real account because they're shadow banning the real Mike Dillard that much. Isn't that strange? So the fake accounts are higher than the actual account hmm. because of shadow banning. That is strange. Yeah, I would say that is some kind of algorithmic thing they're doing to suppress this guy's content. I've noticed that Instagram and Facebook are not great platforms for free speech. I've had posts removed from Facebook, from Instagram for that something that's not even any, there's nothing wrong with that sentence. For example, if you say men and women are different, that's hate speech. Their official policy says that sentence is hate speech. And I don't think that's hate speech. I think apples and oranges are different. That doesn't mean I hate apples or I hate oranges. And there's a lot of things. If you read the hate speech policy of Instagram, it is extremely restrictive. I didn't, I did an article on this, by the way. So if, for example, if you go on Instagram and you make a quote by Hitler, say something like, if you want to control the people, you have to con control the press. That is hate speech. I had a post removed for quoting that because apparently that is promoting, some, uh, promoting a bad figure or something. So, Instagram is the worst platform for this. The worst. Twitter is far superior. It doesn't doesn't censor you as much. It's not the best, it, and it's not free speech by any means. But it is much better than Instagram. Much much better. Mm -hmm. YouTube. I haven't noticed too much of an issue. YouTube is also not a great platform for free speech. And I'll tell you why I think that. If you take someone like Stefan Molyneux, Stefan mm -hmm. Molyneux wasn't saying anything bad. He was just giving out his opinions on things and you could disagree with them. But they just deleted his account for no reason and he was just gone. Poof. And YouTube also seems to be banning people who talk about the vaccine. And if you don't say what the government wants you to say, you're just instantly removed from YouTube without warning. Which is not the case with Twitter. So I would say YouTube also has a major free speech problem. And I would say YouTube... YouTube is worse than Twitter. I'm not sure how... Is it worse than Instagram? I don't think it's worse than Instagram. But it is definitely worse than Twitter. Another thing YouTube doesn't like too much is if you curse. If you curse, then your ads get limited. 
and that makes sense, you know, because they're a business and that's how they're making money. So if yeah. they feel that if you're cursing and people are watching that ad, then they might associate that product negatively. You know, they might associate swear words with that product. So I get mm-hmm. them not, you know, putting up advertisements on certain videos, but I don't understand why they have to remove people for saying some things they don't like. So it's one thing to demonetize people and one thing to remove them altogether. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, YouTube needs to allow people to privately find advertisers and put the ad in. Is that allowed? Because then these guys could do that. They could find independent advertisers who want to, like, you, have you seen these things, Skillshare and all these ads that show up, like some VPN right before the video, this is sponsored by this person? Yeah, I did see that. I think that type of stuff is going to take over in the future if this kind of stuff continues. Yeah, and there are people that work with partnerships behind the scenes, and then they incorporate it into their content as they're speaking. So I can see more people doing that. Uh, For our first episode that we did, Harsh, did we curse or talk about anything controversial? I don't recall. Uh, but I don't think yeah, recently, either, but given that it's us talking, we probably <laughs> did. <laughs> well, recently I saw that ads were restricted there, uh, which basically they'll give you a yellow sign rather than a green sign. So it must have meant that we were either talking about something controversial or we were cursing a lot, How which much I don't think it's the latter. How much money do YouTube ads pay you? So it's different for each video, Harsh, where some videos will make you a lot even though it's tiny, because it appeals to a completely different market. So the long videos that me and you do, they don't really make that much harsh because it's general content. You see what I'm saying? That means advertisers are like, well, I don't necessarily know the target that's watching this. But whenever I make a video on Toastmasters, for example, those are a specific content, which is for public speaking people. And they're from the U.S., so they pay more, but it's hard to give you an exact number because there's so many different variables based off of who's watching it, age group, content type, etc. Oh, so for people who are considering becoming YouTubers, do you think it's viable to make a full-time income just making videos on YouTube and relying on their advertisements? So Harsh, I want to say that you should only rely on ads because The thing is, sometimes things are going well for you. You're getting paid a lot. And then out of nowhere, new changes are introduced and you're not making that much from ads. So unless you're getting millions and millions of views per video, then relying only on ads isn't smart. You should always have something else to sell or you should affiliate for another product. But you should make it more than just getting ad income. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm, I get you. So you ads are like a small part of your revenue on YouTube, but not substantial. Yeah, I would say ads are the icing on the cake, but it should never be the cake. I do uh, you find remember, that YouTube ads are very annoying. I pay for this YouTube premium thing just to not see the ads. Oh, so you ended up paying for the premium? Yeah, I don't want to see ads. It's such a waste of my time. And I know that you can use an ad blocker and the ad won't show up, but that doesn't work Uh, on the YouTube app. It seems as though nowadays, Harsh, that the people that made the ads, they follow similar patterns. 
it's as though that they're reading off a script and I can already predict what they're going to say next before I even hear them. And I, I'm 100% sure that they're working through a script and I end up getting a lot of ads for e-commerce brands or how to make money online. And the traditional way is, are you tired of making money? Then the next part is, don't worry, I'm not like the fake gurus out there. And number three, I have a new system that's going to help you out that will help you reach the life of your dreams. And number four, sign up for this webinar and voila. It's not that I'm against the format or you making money online. It's just that it's so scripted at times, but you can't necessarily relate because you're not seeing these ads. Well, if everyone's doing it and they're continuously doing it, then that means it works. Mm -hmm. And if it works, then why change it? So we can judge it and, you know, we can be like, you, you're uncreative or if you are just doing the same thing. But if they're all doing it and they're all still doing it and they're paying for it to YouTube, that means that thing is working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You ever read any of Russell Brunson's books? I have not. I do have traffic secrets in my library, but I haven't yet read it. Yeah. In the first two books, he gives you certain scripts that you can follow for your funnel. And I think that's what they're doing. But yeah, I'm not hating on it, Harsh. I'm more so saying it from a consumer's viewpoint where when I see it, it's it, it's unique because I'm thinking, huh, these are step-by-step step in different industries following the same routine. So I'm not a big fan of ads, but nowadays I'll watch it. I'll let it play from beginning to end because I want to see what formula they're working with. Ah, uh -huh, you're costing some guy a lot of money. <laughs> Uh, anyways, Harsh, I got a tweet of yours pulled up uh, that I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have anything else to say on the matter I that we were not. just speaking about? All right. You've been tweeting some um, unique talking points recently. And one thing that I liked was if a man's ego or identity depends on believing something, there is nothing you can say to convince him to change his mind. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. So, you know, when people try to have some kind of argument or discussion, they're trying to change the other person's mind. Mm -hmm. You have to first ask yourself whether is it even possible to change this person's mind? And there are many cases where it's not possible. And I'll give you examples of some. For example, if that person's ego on, is dependent on believing something to be true. For example, if a girl thinks that sleeping around is not damaging to her relationships in the future. And, you know, if she thinks that she's equal to a pure girl, even though she's slept around a lot, there's nothing you can say that will convince her otherwise. Because to be convinced by you, she will have to accept that she's a slut, which she's never going to do. Because that's going to like mess up her ego. So if you're trying to convince a girl that she's worth less because she's not as pure as a pure girl, well, it might be true, and it is true, but there is nothing you can say to her to change her mind. Secondly, mm -hmm. when people have their identity invested in something, so this is that some people have believed something since they, for a long time, and now you're telling them that's not true, and to for them to change their mind, there's a huge sunk cost involved where they have to realize that they've wasted years believing something that was wrong. 
and they're not going to do that for example if you take someone who thinks that rich people are evil and you know they stole all the money and that's why they're not rich well you can try telling them that rich people created the wealth and you could have been rich if you tried creating more things and you know you were doing you were working harder and being more creative taking more risks well you mm-hmm. cannot convince this person of this because to do that they're going to have to accept the fact that they just wasted maybe 10 years 20 years or whatever time they wasted believing something that is wrong they're not going to take that hit they're just going to keep deluding themselves more and more and there's nothing you can say to change that because they have their identity completely invested in this thing you will have the same thing with say something like a feminist or whatever is even religion religious people like this where they've believed something ever since they were children and there's nothing you can say that that's going to convince them otherwise they're just too into something they're too into it and the third one is when they're making money of believing something or they're making money of saying something for example if there's a guy or if you take a celebrity if the celebrity is making a lot of money basically appealing to feminists and saying completely derailed shit that feminists like to hear if she's making money doing it there's nothing you can say that's going to change her mind or at least going to make her admit that she was wrong because if she admits that she was wrong publicly she is going to lose that source of income so she's not going to admit it at all and there's nothing you can do about it so the tweet is essentially conveying that before you get into an argument you have to first understand whether this argument is going to get anywhere or not or are you just going to get into some kind of ego clash with no reason and destroy your friendship or relationship so you have to first understand is this person someone who is open to changing his opinion or not and if they're not you recommend not even debating with them yeah don't waste your time like if you if they're not you know what you could do is if you still want to get your point across is mm-hmm. that you could ask them for their opinion and then you could keep asking them questions about it and eventually they will end up at a situation where they will find themselves that they, they will find that they've done so many mental gymnastics that they're essentially living in a house of cards so for example if you take someone who believes that uh, uh, give me an example of something that's bullshit that people like to believe um like that there's a soulmate for you there's okay. that only one soulmate okay so there's only one soulmate for you so how do you know whether this person is born say near you maybe this soulmate is born in say africa and they speak some some african language say swahili they don't speak english or hindi how will you even communicate with them so why so let's let's assume the soulmate thing is true so you could ask them why do you assume your soulmate it's only one person out of 7.2 billion so why do you assume their soulmate is somewhere in a situation that's close to you they speak your language and let's say this guy this person is around the same age as you why do you why do you believe that and then they're going to come up with some explanation and then you could ask them more questions about it and eventually they will they're going to realize that they've just they've done so many mental gymnastics that this is their own story is complete bullshit 
Okay, yeah. Let's say you had a soulmate. She was in Africa and you were in India. And the soulmate died in a car crash. So what? what's now? What now? Are you going to be single forever? And how do you know there's only one soulmate? Not See, thousands. Yeah, if you say there's a thousand soulmates, then there's no, the concept of soulmate doesn't exist anymore. Because by definition, a soulmate is supposed to be one person, right? Gotcha. Harsh. So I saw this post recently, and I've been talking about this for some time. Have you ever heard of the movie Titanic? I have watched that movie when I was a kid. My school took us to watch it. Okay, so you ended up watching it. So I, did, although I didn't understand all of it because, you know, I, my, I was the first person in my family to go to a school that taught in English. And my family, mm. all of my family speaks Hindi or whatever other languages, the, the local language. Mm-hmm. And at that point in my life, my English was not great at all. And I just could not understand much of that movie. But I did remember watching it. Okay, so I'm just going to talk about the general parts, nothing too specific. But when I was a little kid, along with many of the other kids watching Titanic, it was one of the sweetest movies ever because of love, romance, all of that kind of stuff. But as I get older, I noticed that that Rose girl, I didn't consider her a good person. I thought she was deceiving and I saw this Facebook post that came up recently of this guy breaking down all the reasons that Rose was a deceiving person. And I thought, huh, how random that this guy thought of the same thing that I was thinking of. But it wasn't only me that was thinking of it. There were plenty of people liking and sharing this post. And so many of the commenters were saying, man, no, you don't know what you're talking about. A Titanic is that movie of love, of romance. And it's that belief, because when you're thinking about Hollywood or movies in general, a Titanic is one of the mega movies out there. So reviewing it as an adult and seeing the certain character flaws of iconic characters is not something that you do. But now people are doing it. So surprisingly harsh, this ties in with your initial tweet, where there are identities and egos connected with this movie. Is it? Is that the case? Yeah, man. I mean, you got to watch it one more time, then we'll have another uh, discussion on it because I want to see what you think of Rose. So from all I remember from Titanic is that the movie was about um, that you can float on the door so to save yourself in case of a boat drowning. Oh, so you remember the ending of it. Uh, but you don't remember the storyline then? I remember that there's some kind of safe that comes out in the beginning. And the safe mm-hmm. has some painting and there's an old lady. And I remember that to save yourself in case a boat drowns, they're trying to teach you to take the door of the toilet and then be on that door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was around the end. But overall, Titanic is this one cruise ship that you go on. And it's divided into rich people that are going on it, along with not-so-rich people. Ah, yes. I've read and, a book on Titanic. I read something called Hourly History. History. Mm-hmm. So I'm familiar with the story of what happened. I, the movie is probably some kind of love story by the way you're talking, right? Yeah. So Rose is uh, the wife to this uh, guy named Cal, 
who's one of the rich guys. And she ends up cheating on Cal with one of the poor guys named Jack. And she pretty much begins the love affair behind the scenes. And, you know, as a youngster, I always thought that Cal was this bad guy. Of course. He's not a good person. But as I started to grow older, I'm like, and Cal's over here taking care of her family. Oh, no, I mean, Rose, Rose is not a good person, right? She's cheating, not Cal. Cal is like just some guy. Well, yeah, but if you tell people uh, that, no, Cal's not that bad of a guy, people are like, no, 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 what are you saying? Cal's the bad guy in the movie. Well, I'm like, I know that's that the... That doesn't justify cheating on someone. Like, yeah, I'm like, someone I, I, like them. yeah, I'm like, I know he's set as the antagonist for the movie, but let's say we're evaluating this movie from the lens of an adult. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's a bad guy. So you got to use a little bit of critical thinking, but you don't want to use too much critical thinking where the movie uh, turns from yeah, a story to an analysis of psychology. But that's what the Facebook post was becoming so controversial for, where there was a group of people that are like, no, 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 Rose can do no wrong. While another group was like, no, man, Rose is a hoe. Call it out. I'll send you, I'll see if I can find it and I'll send Rose it to you. Rose is a hoe. I'm in that camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, congrats, Harsh. We just got demonetized from this video, too. It's cool. I'll send you no, the jokes that they're going to give you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one more of your tweets posted up, Harsh, but I can't find it right now. Um, other than that, we were talking about what do you think of love not... stories? Do you like watching them? Do I like watching them? I don't mind watching them because I can engage two sides of me. I can engage the analytical, critical part, and the other side of me, I could engage the artistic side. So when I engage the artistic side, I let the director and the filmmaker take me on the journey. I'm not going to be nitpicking. Well, if I were you, I would have done this instead. So for me, I don't necessarily view it as love movies, comedy movies, horror movies, etc. I view it as art. I try to perceive it first, and then I'll make my assessment of whether I like it or not. Mm. But to answer your question, Harsh, from all the different genres out there, the two that I don't like that much are horror movies and love movies. I would much rather prefer a mystery, drama, or a comedy movie. I see. And you're someone that doesn't watch much, right? I watch Even for just- one movie every two, three years. And that's usually because my friends will just kind of force me to go. Mm-hmm. I do kind of keep getting, you know, if you're seeing some girl, she she's she's going to keep trying to convince you to watch some love story movie with her. So right. I keep just denying them that. And what about Netflix shows? Have you heard of Squid Games? I, ha- I don't have Netflix. I don't have any of these subscriptions. I have heard oh, okay. of that Squid Games thing on some, some I've heard some tweets about it. There's a mm-hmm. show that I want to watch, though, if I can find some time. It comes very recommended, something called Peakly Blinders. And I want to watch it because my friend, I am, is writing a book on the main character called, uh, I forgot the guy's name. But apparently he's a badass masculine character. Let me, let me look mm-hmm. for the guy's name, wait. Something Shelby. 
I've heard of Peaky Blinders, but I haven't watched it yet. Wait, let me see. Thomas Shelby, yeah. So apparently it has some very badass character and I've had a bunch of people I respect recommend watching that show just to watch how that character acts so you can absorb mm-hmm. some of their personality. Like what does the average sitcom have? It has a bunch of complete losers, especially the men. The men are just complete dorks, losers, and they have no masculinity at all. Masculinity, okay. And when teenagers and people watch such shows, they absorb those personalities into themselves and they end up becoming very beta and unmasculine as too. So it would be better if we had shows that were more masculine, which people could watch because let's face it, most people are going to watch these things anyway. They don't, they, have, they don't have enough to do, so they're going to spend a lot of their time just watching TV. So they're probably better off watching something more masculine than something like a superhero movie or something like Friends or How I Met Your Mother or you know whatever other show they watch nowadays. Yeah, uh, and I also think you should. It depends on which hat you're wearing it with. I think if you're watching it at, to understand building plot, creating characters, creating storylines, and I think you could virtually watch anything and learn something from it. I mean, yeah, you could do okay. that, but you would rather learn more than learn less, no? Or you would rather yeah. learn something that's good than learn something that's stupid and doesn't work. For example, if you take uh, if you take a show like Friends, and I know the show well because I did watch all of it back when I was in 11th grade or high school, like 11 years ago or something, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it did make me a bit beta. Because I used to think these guys are cool. Like I wanted back then a life like these guys. And now I think these guys are complete losers. <laughs> so yeah, I used to be very loaty, very soy until I was 16 and started hitting the gym. Well, yeah, I mean, Harsh, I think most characters in shows are like that. That's because you can't necessarily relate with an alpha strong See, character. Something like James Bond. I would say that's not a beta character. We need more characters like James Bond for our children to see. Uh If you take, uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are familiar with you are with Hinduism, but if you take the character of Hanuman, now that is a character you can respect and learn from and try to be like. Mm -hmm. But which characters do most people look up to nowadays? They look up to Friends, Chandler, Ross, and all these complete losers. And... <laughs> I don't know anyone that looks up to them, man. I, no, I, I find them to be They want to be me. like them. Like, they want a life like them. They want to do the things they are doing. So they look up to them, whether they say it out loud or not. I see where you're coming from because you're talking about TV that has the capability to program other people. I do like this particular movie it's called rocky i watched it a long time ago maybe mm. like 10 years ago yeah and th- it's about boxing and i really like the fact that even though you might not be good at something if you train hard enough you can be the best yeah it's a, it's a great movie of 
underdog. Work hard and you'll get better. Then another movie I really like is The Godfather. And what I like about mm-hmm. that movie is that unlike all the other movies where, you know, it's just about being aggressive and pushing people around, The Godfather is more realistic. Like you have to be in control, you have to be calm, you have to understand the situation. You can't let your emotions get the best of you. You need to know what you're saying, you need to watch yourself. You need to understand where you are, which power structure you are in, the human situation, understand people. So I think it portrays the whole leader quality and you know controlling something like a mafia or a company in a truer sense than most other movies do probably. So I like that movie. I like Fight Club. Have you watched that one? Fight Club I've seen. It's a little nihilistic nowadays. Like I, I, I would not agree with the ideology today. But when I was 15, 16 years old, it used to be one of my favorite movies. And I was very... Have you ever heard of... Go ahead. Have, have you ever heard of Batman The Dark Knight? Uh, is this the movie where there's a guy who wears a mask? Yeah. I've watched that movie. So if you're talking about a movie that was like, more than 10 years ago, I have probably watched it. Is it 10 years ago? I don't know. When I, was, I, I used to watch all the popular movies in 11th grade. I just didn't have anything else to do. And all my friends were doing the same thing. Was there? Okay, well, it came out in 2008. So I believe that's the one you're talking about. Did it have a character called the Joker? It did not. It had this guy who froze the ocean or something. Froze the ocean? Yeah, and he was making people walk across the ocean. Oh, you're talking about Dark Knight Rises. He basically had this, he was this big muscular guy with a mask. Yeah, who wore a mask. His name was Bane. Okay, so you saw the one after the one I'm talking about. So that's called Dark Knight Rises. Okay. Did you like that movie? I don't remember. Okay. I think I did. From what you're describing, I would expect you to like the Batman series. Because it's not something that is completely out of the norm that can never happen. It's something that is capable of happening because it talks about psychology, human nature, the dark sides of living in a city. I'm pretty sure you'll like it. My, I would say the Batman movie is kind of like Prince of Persia, you know. It's cool to look at, it's cool to play, but the environment is just unrealistic. Like, what challenges do you face in your life? It's interpersonal challenges or some, like, unless, there's two types of challenges, basically. One is some lack of skill or strength. And the other is interpersonal challenges where you're not able to deal with people properly. And what Batman is about is completely different. There's some kind of villain attacking the city and you're saving the city. So it's more of a unrealistic scenario, so to speak. But with movies like uh, The Godfather, this is about interpersonal relationships. Like it's about how are you dealing with the situation, dealing with the people around you. So I would say that is more um, interesting for me to watch. Mm-hmm. Even well, Game Harsh, of Thrones is I, like that. Well, Harsh, I wouldn't say that with Batman, like it can never happen. Where a guy like Joker, he doesn't have any superpowers or anything like that from my understanding. He's this mentally insane guy that could turn regular people into dark creatures that you wouldn't even recognize. 
And one of the powerful quotes in that movie is, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that quote isn't something that just happens with movies. You see that all around you. People that when they're given power or you give them something that allows them to exercise that power, you see dark sides out of them. And in movie number two, I don't want to ruin it for anyone that plans to watch it, but there's this one character who ends up going from golden boy uh, to someone that you won't even be able to recognize because he's presented with certain dark scenarios that life keeps delivering to him one after another. So I do see your point with complete fantasy movies, but I don't think Batman falls into that category. Hmm. Can you give me an example of a realistic situation where you have seen something like this happen just so that I can understand where you're coming from? Okay, so folks, if you plan to watch Batman, I just fast forward the next two minutes uh, because I, I may talk about some spoilers. So Harsh, there's this uh, character, uh, he's this famous lawyer who is pretty much seen as the golden boy within this uh, community known as Gotham. And he's putting away a lot of the bad people in prison because he's that good of a lawyer. And throughout the movie, one character, Joker, is constantly putting... Oh, no, no, no. Harvey. I mean, the, can you give me a real situation where this might have happened? Like, not in the movie. I mean, I mean like, in real life. So I'll give you a scenario. Uh, we'll go back to UFC real quick. Okay. So there's this a fighter called John Jones. I would say he's one of the greatest fighters in the UFC. And John in Jones. the beginning of... Yes. And okay. in the beginning of his career, he was always seen as the golden boy. Uh, someone who was religious, a good person, a great character. Mm -hmm. But as he continued to rise in the UFC, he was given more access to power. And his immediate rise brought out his dark sides as well, where he's been caught in DUIs. He's got caught with drugs. And recently, he had a pretty horrific crime against his wife. So you're seeing this person in real time, evolve from what was known as a good guy to becoming, I don't want to paint him as the bad guy, but in the media, he's becoming the poster boy of the bad guy. And we're seeing whether or not he could be this top tier fighter that he once was, or if he's going to be one of the uh, lost cause stories that we often see. A similar situation is happening with Conor McGregor right now, where we're seeing these people go from hero to becoming a villain. So that's the transition. Those are two examples, John Jones and Conor McGregor. Hmm. I would say that happens because, you know, they've made a decent amount of money. So they're financially independent right now. And, you know, all the people they're around, love them, wherever they go, people cheer them. So they lose a sense of reality, basically. And they start thinking of themselves like they're some kind of God. And I would say that mm -hmm. is human nature, you know. I I wouldn't I would say this is something that humans were not built for. We were not built to be extremely popular all over the world. And too much fame and power gets into people's head. So I would not blame this John Jones guy or Conor McGregor guy. Like in the sense that I, I'm not saying that they should not be held accountable for their actions. I'm saying that they, I understand why they have become what they have become. 
Like I get well, it. That makes you that makes you respect the people who haven't taken that path more, right? I, I know you haven't heard of LeBron James, but he's been in the spotlight since he was 15 years old. And I believe he's 34, 35 now. And I can't recall one time that he's gotten in any major trouble, which is respect for him. Hmm, that's very good for him. I would say some people are genetically more humble and more less flamboyant than other people. So this guy could be one of them. But I would say that for 80% of people, if you add a lot of fame and power and influence to their life, that is how they will turn out to be. If you take kings, they have their children who are princes. These princes had to be taught all of their their entire life, ever since they were children to the, them becoming adults. They had to be trained by lots of gurus and the their father that their job is not to enjoy the kingdom and mess with people. Their job is to govern and help people. So I would say if someone is going to be that famous, they have to be trained to be able to handle it. I don't. I think very few people can handle it just by their DNA. Most people become corrupt and drunk with power. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I gave you props for, Harsh, because, I mean, you're technically one of the bigger accounts who, at this point, could have that mentality where you're just like, man, fuck you to everyone. I did this all by myself. But that's why I do give you props for that, where you go out of your way to help other people and you're you're collaborative rather than competitive. See, I would like to keep growing. I don't want to stop growing. And if I become too arrogant, then my personal growth would stop because now I now I would think that I've achieved everything. I'm better than everyone else. There is nothing I can learn from anyone. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. So I, I have to generally remind myself and I have a list of affirmations that I do every single day. And one of them is that you're just a human being and you have a lot to learn. Mm. It keeps you grounded, you know, because if you go on Twitter, I can say anything and there's bound to be people who agree with me and there's bound to be people who disagree with me. But most things that I could say get people agreeing with me. Some some things get, get a lot of people disagreeing, but most things do get people agreeing with me. And the natural tendency for at least people my age, like I'm not 70, 80 years old, right? I'm 25. The natural tendency for someone my age would be to become extremely narcissistic. And that's something I've consciously tried to avoid because that's not going to be good for me. And would you say the affirmations are mainly what you do? Or do you have your personal teachers as well? Uh, I'm sorry, what? Is it the affirmations that's keeping you grounded? Or do you also have personal teachers that teach you how to be grounded? I would say the affirmations play a role. But generally, I have to always keep it in mind that I have a long way to go. And this is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. I would not say I have teachers teaching it to me because at this point I don't really have many explicit teachers. Although I do learn from a lot of people on Twitter and online and in my personal life, 
I don't have anyone who explicitly says that they are my mentor or something. Mm-hmm. Speaking of affirmations, Harsh, well, I am one of the guys that try to learn from anyone. Uh, I learn from guys like you. I learn from books. I learn from my parents. I learn from my brother. I'm overall one of the kinds of guys that I used to be competitive to a point where I wanted to, I wouldn't say destroy people, but I always had to be number one because I work with that chip on my shoulder. But then later on in my life, I realized the importance of collaboration, where when you can collaborate correctly, you're building these partnerships that work for you, even when you're done working. So these are what I call social assets. Example is me and you right now. If I was over here competing with you all the time and I was burning bridges with you, then we'd never have this Unapologetic Truths podcast. So my personal philosophy is that I learn from everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you do affirmations? Nah, man. So I used to try the affirmations, but it didn't necessarily work for me. Um, so I actually had a blog post that I'm going to post in the description box, and I gave my two cents on affirmations. I believe it does work, and I believe it's highly potent when you do it with the right intent. Uh, some people, they just want to practice for like a day or two, quit and be like, oh, it didn't work. But what I learned from my life is that I like to do gratitude more than affirmations, where with gratitude, you're saying thank you to something. So you're actually becoming a little bit more dependent. And I notice it creates more physical sensations in my body versus with affirmations where you say I am. That small transition is something that I've noticed is creates different fluxes in my body rather than saying I am saying thank you. So I'm not someone who doesn't think affirmations work. I do think it works, but I prefer gratitude instead. Mm. So when speaking I of harsh, go ahead, speaking of harsh, I wanted to ask you this. What are your two cents on law of attraction? I think it works. The law of attraction is generally speaking how the world works. And for those of you who don't know the law of attraction, the law of attraction basically is that you get what you're giving out to the world. So if you're being positive and optimistic, the world is going to be positive and optimistic towards you. On the other hand, if you're being panicky, doomsday, then that's what you're going to get from the world. So if you are helpful to people, people will be helpful to you. If you're a bitch, then people will be bitchy towards you, etc. <laughs> and I think it's true. I think that is how it is. If you're helpful to people, people want to help you back. Not everybody, but most people. If you are rude and you walk over people, that they will not like you and they will try to do the same to you. I would say law of attraction is very true. It works. Yes, I, I would say it works. What are your thoughts on it? I like the mindset regarding it. And I think nowadays it's become a punching bag where I remember in one of our conversations, Harsh, where we were talking about fake it till you make it. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a group of people that are like, man, that's nonsense. You shouldn't be doing fake it till you make it. And I believe in that episode, you gave your case for why you see the utility in it. It worked for me. But yeah, but I noticed that tons of people, I talked down on it and 
once there's a group, there's a herd that starts to echo the same sentiment. And it's the same thing with law of attraction, where I think there's a group of people nowadays that get tidbits of law of attraction, and they'll say something like, oh, you just uh, thinking and wishing about it is not going to uh, make you attract anything. You got to put in the work. Yeah, and that's how they frame it. Yeah, but I believe... What, yeah, but I believe the true definition of law of attraction is your thoughts, feelings, and behavior, which is the work part, all come into alignment, and that's when it becomes aggravated. So you can't just think and visualize all day, but you got to put in the work. And I think that's implied when you and I are talking about law of attraction. You know, what happens is that you know, people make strawman arguments where they don't completely understand something, but they go around forming and spreading opinions about it nonetheless. So. For example, if you take something like Bitcoin, people who don't understand the technology, who have no idea what it is, will often go around saying things like, um, this is a scam and the government is the only one who can be printing money and this is a government function. And they just lack the knowledge about money and what Bitcoin actually is. But they're still forming opinions about it. And they're basically making strawman arguments where they're just extrapolating one thing to an absurd degree. For example, if you take the law of attraction, there is no one who says law of attraction is true that also says you just have to think and not do anything. Like there's no one saying that. So your argument mm -hmm. that you can't be wishing and you can't just be wishing you have to work is a bit moot, isn't it? Like no one's, no one is saying that you don't have to work. That is a different issue altogether. Right. Like, assuming you have to work, but this uh, this makes it better. Like this makes it easier. It so it also works. So people have this tendency to just bash on things before they have understood the concept. Mm -hmm. and, and they want to have that opinion, and they want to they want to be that first guy that's like, "Huh, everyone's talking about this certain trend. Let me be different than that." Where I don't mind that as long as you understand the philosophy first before you form an opinion. Absolutely. So people just, especially on social media, like if you're doing something, if you're saying something completely uh, new and, you know, something that's a little brash, it tends to attract a lot of people. And I've seen people say really absurd shit because it, that's how social media is. Like people will say really absurd shit like, to the point it's it's like they're living in an alternate universe. Mm -hmm. And let me give you another example, Harsh, where books became a punching bag too, where I'll see certain tweets or posts on Instagram, Facebook that are like, reading books is a form of procrastination. You must take action. You must do. And I'm thinking, well, duh, buddy, if you're just sitting and reading all day without applying, that's not good. But I'm... Assuming that people who are saying read books are recommending that you also take action as well. Yeah, it's, it's just a strawman argument, you know, where they're just extrapolating something so much that it's so absurd. So someone saying you should read books is not saying you should only read books. Mm -hmm. So if I say you should eat protein, more protein, I'm not saying the only thing you should eat is protein. And if you eat any fat or carbs, it's bad for you. But that's how people tend to interpret it. It's just people, they, you know, people just want to have a strong opinion 
but they don't want to put in any research or effort into actually approaching the truth. I would say at least 80% of humans don't care about the truth. They just want to be right. So I want to talk about this one platitude that I hear a lot, and I want to get your opinion on it. But let me just give you my two cents first. So I wrote this email recently talking about uh, the quote, how you treat the service says a lot about you or some remix to that. You ever heard that quote before? How you treat the service says a lot about you. Do you mean like service people like waiters? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a very popular chain of thinking in India. That's how people think. There used to be a yeah, very popular so, movie that popularized this. So I was breaking this quote down recently, and I think that's accurate. How you treat the service does say a lot about you. But personally, where I'm from, our, mm-hmm. most people, when they're going out to eat, it's normally seen where they're treating the service with respect, where if they mess up an order, we're not yelling at them immediately. A certain mishaps happen and we're fine with it. And this is the general trend of what I see. Mm-hmm. When I see someone being disrespectful to the service, that's something that's out of the norm. But then I flipped it in my email where I talked about the opposite, where I've seen a lot of times when the service is rude to the customers, they're not following up, asking if the customers want more water. And if the service messes up the order and the customer asks to fix it, they roll their eyes. I've lost count of how many times I saw that. So now I'm thinking, where's the remix to this quote? How the service treats the customer says a lot about them. And pretty much the reason I was bringing up this analysis. It says a lot about the management. Yeah. And the reason I was bringing up this entire analysis was because in certain pockets of culture, normally a person is shamed into giving high tips, even if the service was poor. And as a guy who's worked in the restaurant industry before, I don't think that's right. I think instead of shaming other people to give you a high tip, work hard so you deserve your tip. So that was my two cents regarding that. How do you shame someone into giving you a tip? Dude, I see it all the time where someone's like, if you don't tip at least 26 to 30%, then I shame on you. You don't even deserve to go out and eat. If you don't tip 30%, I- then what? Like, what's gonna, what, what are you going to do? They're not going to do anything, but they'll just say, you don't even deserve to go out to eat if that's the case. How does that Have you seen a post like that? I have not. That's not the culture here, though. Like People here don't tip. It's not, it's not something you would expect. Like you're paying for the food and the guy's getting his salary. So this is his job. So why do you have to tip? Although I do. Do you guys have the concept? We have it in cities. It's just something that's coming up nowadays where people will leave like, five ten rupees at the end of their food but it's not something that people tend to do Hmm. the average person will not give a tip and why should he it makes no sense the guy for example let's take if you take your lawyer okay do you tip your lawyer you pay him a fee right right do you tip the receptionist at at the lawyer's office no why not? Well, I don't even know. Are we supposed to tip them? 
I don't remember why, the office. Forget the whole supposed to or not supposed to. Let's arrive at the whole concept of tips. So why are we tipping someone who is being paid a salary? You shouldn't do that. Like their employer is supposed to pay them enough that you do, they shouldn't be expecting money from the customer. Mm-hmm. So at least that's how things are here in India. I'm not sure how things are in the US, although I've heard people say like tip 10%, 12% or whatever. Well, in the US, here's how it works for certain restaurants. The service gets paid well below a minimum wage for a lot of locations. So it's the tips that give them a higher ceiling of how much they can make. So if they don't make any tips at all, then they're getting paid below minimum wage. It's the same thing with a pizza d- delivery drivers, where I believe when I was delivering pizzas in my undergrad, I was getting paid like three or four bucks, but getting tips is what allowed me to have a higher ceiling. Ah, so that's why. So it's like the system there is that because you're expected to get a tip, we can pay you a lower salary. Exactly. So let's say the minimum wage harsh is eight bucks. Normally service makes three bucks baseline pay and the tips is what allows it to balance out and even increase. So if I was a service worker, which I used to be, I would want to work even harder. I'd want to work even uh, more um, charismatic in terms of my people skills so I can reach a higher ceiling rather than expecting these people to just give me a tip for poor service. See, in that case, it makes sense. Like, If that is the thing there where the guy who's serving you isn't being paid enough because you're the one who's expected to tip them, then I think you should tip them. But I don't think you should give them money if the service is bad. Mm -hmm. Because then you're encouraging bad behavior. Right. Uh, Let's say your pizza delivery driver was 50 minutes late. Are you going to give him a tip then? No. Do you guys have pizza delivery drivers there? We do, but no one tips them. It, it's it's very, even the idea of tipping a driver, the delivery guy is just so weird. Like no one does that. Mm-hmm. Even when I used to work in Zingo, uh, have you ever heard of Uber or Lyft? Yeah, I've heard of Uber and Lyft. Yeah, so I used to work in this place called Zingo, which was uh, available before Uber and Lyft. And this one is different where it's mainly for drunk people. So let's say you go to a restaurant, Harsh, and you've been drinking too many sour amaretto's or something, and you have your car at the restaurant. So you call a Zingo driver and two people meet up with you. One of the people gets in your car and takes you and your car to your location. The other one follows you to your house. And then the next morning, you have your car back you're back at your location and the other Zingo driver drives away. That's the basic way of how Zingo worked. And we ended up getting what? I would say a dollar below minimum wage. But what is the minimum since these wage people, there? So back then it was $7.58. So I ended up getting paid $6.58. But here's the twist, Harsh. Since these people were drunk, right? They were willing to give you a high tip. And our manager was smart for Zingo, where he wanted to only service rich people, not college kids. So I was Mm. over here driving Ferraris, Maseratis, and I was getting 
50, $100 tips for just a 10 to 15 minute ride. But I was never expecting the tips. I was talking to these people, creating small talk with them and getting to know them. And then they gave me the tips as a byproduct. I see. My main thing was, Harsh, was that you shouldn't expect something for poor quality work. You should take pride in your work and then good tips is a reward. You know, I don't think anyone expects anything for poor quality work. What happens is that the guy who's doing poor quality work thinks that his work is good. Mm. Like he doesn't know that his work is poor quality. I've seen people with the opposite harsh where when I used to work in Subway, I saw a guy who would literally say, and he was my coworker who'd say, and I'm only here for the paycheck. And he was intentionally being rude to the customers when they talked back at him. And he was slow. He was slowing down the entire supply chain. But at the end of the day, our boss would divide our tips the same way. And I didn't like that because this guy, for him, it was just a paycheck. But for me, since I was 16 or 17 at the time, that was my first ever Job. real work. Yeah. So Any I took pride in that. 16? Yeah. So 16 is when you could get your job. Oh, I think in India, it's 18. You oh, can't, is it? You can't work at 16. You can't legally work at 16. Like People do do that, but it's not, it's not. as far as I know, it's not legal. That's interesting. Yeah, so I think that in your case, that subway was being heavily mismanaged. Like anytime you have service people talk back to the customer, you know you're in a mismanaged institution. Mm-hmm. Because even if the customer is being rude, if you're rude back to them, it's you're just hurting your business. Have you ever worked in fast food? I have never worked any of these small jobs. Your first job was accounting, right? Yes. And what did your dad do, Harsh? You said he was a farmer? Yeah, so my father was a farmer all his life, not all his life, like at least before I was born. And then he also got into accounting. And after I was born and he got married, then he moved to a city. So initially, like, all his youth, he was a farmer, and then he married a little very late by Indian standards. And then after I got born, we moved to a major city here in India. So I'm the first person in my, fa- in my family who got a proper education. Like my dad also did get an education in accounting, but it was in Hindi and it wasn't, he didn't have any teachers. He just did it by the books. But I got like a school and teachers and English language students and everything because I was in a city and he was in like a small village. So he stopped with the farming completely when he moved to the city? Yeah, he got a job in the city. I think when I was very small, he was working at a factory. If he ended up staying in the farm and he wanted you to pick up the farm with him, would you have done it? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a, it's difficult to answer that question. If I had all the skills and knowledge, why would I do farming? But if he had stayed at the farm, I would not have that. So if my father had never moved to a city, 
I would have never gone to an English medium school. I would have never gotten a proper education. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. So recently I was traveling and I was going to, I was at a very small town. It had really good beaches and everything. And all the kids there, I was talking to them and there were kids who failed eighth grade, ninth grade, and they were not going to go back to school again because they were just going to work at that farm or, you know, growing supari and everything, what they were growing there. Or, you know, work as helpers at the beach where you do all the boat rides and everything. So they were just going to not go to school. And I would say that if my father had just decided to stay being a farmer and, you know, milk the cattle and everything, there's a good likelihood that I would have dropped out of school at what, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth standard before high school that is and then i would lack the education the ability to do what i'm doing today so it would i see what the, you're saying the choice would not even be there for me so there was a great part where your dad did end up going to the city which altered your life as well i would say that it completely changed my life because had he stayed at the village my life would have been so different i i really consider myself very very lucky that my father made that decision because my mm-hmm. other brothers my cousin brothers did not were not as lucky and do you have any siblings or are you an only child let let me stay anon Okay. Good point. Hey, Harsh, I could cut this part out if you don't want to answer the question, but I, I was going to ask you, like, if you ever plan on not being Anon, or do you want me to not ask you that? I do plan on not being Anon maybe in a couple of years. I do want to get a few things done before that. I think not being Anon would probably involve a lot of hassle. So, it's just something I don't have the bandwidth for right now. But in the future, I plan to do more business things online. And at that point, I will probably decide to stop being anon because it becomes harder to promote your business while staying anon. And got it. So you'll show your face? Probably. I look good. I don't have an issue with that. To be determined. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a. See, once you become, you know, you once you become, you have your identity and everything attached. That's something you have to manage. Then you know, and that takes you know brain power, and it's something that you have to give attention to. Right. I've seen a few accounts on Twitter, Harsh, since I started in 2018, that went from faceless to showing their face. Uh, I know a couple of them. There's a guy called Seen, Western Mastery, who went from anon to non anon. Then Deep Thrill went from anon to not anon. So it seems mm-hmm. like a decent idea. Maybe for the future though. Like maybe three, right. four years on the line. Right. Western Mastery was one of the first accounts that gave me a shout out, which allowed my account to start growing. And we ended up having a chat on Zoom. And I believe he was bouncing that idea with me. 
he was thinking, you think I should show my face? And during the call, I was seeing his face. So I was like, yeah, why not? And he ended up doing it. So he's a great guy, Western Mastery. One of the big accounts that I owe for the Armani Talks brand growing alongside you as well. Is he still around? I haven't seen anything from him in like in the past two years or something. Let me check. I believe. Yeah, go ahead and share. Western Mastery. Okay, so I don't follow him and he doesn't follow me. I do remember this account from back in 2018, though. Mm-hmm. Pretty well, cool he shows account. his face right now. He shows his face now, but he has those laser eyes. Ah, those laser eyes. I think that laser eyes thing is a lot of peer pressure. The reason I don't do it is I refuse to let all of these things get to me. Mm-hmm. Because what is this laser eye thing like? It, it is, in a way... Or everyone's doing it, so you're doing it. Oh, other people are doing it? I've never seen there that before. There are so many people doing this laser eye thing. It means that you like Bitcoin. Oh. Well, Harsh, you're one of the accounts that are Anon that does interviews. I don't know any other complete Anon accounts that do interviews. Do you? I'm, I'm, I don't know them either. The reason I do interviews is that it it just it just gives you so much credibility because if you take anyone can make a Twitter account like a robot and start saying things, but they can't do live conversations like this. This takes actual knowledge and skill. So this is proof that I know what I'm talking about, and it's also fun to do. Like people who are not truly knowledgeable and they're faking it, they can't free flow do free flow conversations like we are doing right now. They have to think and process it and then say something. And to the people listening to this, if you don't believe me, try making an impromptu speech on a topic you know nothing about. So if you've never been an entrepreneur, make a 10-minute speech on entrepreneurship. Like Take your phone out, press a record button, and record a 10-minute thing on entrepreneurship. And you will see that you you just won't be able to do it at all. Like you'll get stuck in five seconds. It's something to be good and to be able to just have free flow conversations, you need to be knowledgeable. I couldn't agree more with you because there's so many different processes that take place, not only when you're speaking impromptu, but when you're having a conversation partner as well. You're exercising concentration skills, you're exercising breathing skills, you're thinking on your feet, you're processing your memories, you're articulating, and it looks easy from the outside, but when you're doing it, it's not easy. Agreed. Although I would like to ask you, how has your experience being been not being anon since you have not been anon from the beginning, I think? I believe it's been good for me, Harsh, because when I was starting Armani Talks, this was pretty much a hobby. I was restarting Toastmasters and I was, I just showed my face and I believe I had eight followers for the first three or four weeks. I tweeted a hundred times and no one was discovering me. And I never thought Armani Talks was going to get even more than 100, 200 followers. So me showing my face was just something that I was expecting myself to do. But as more time went on by, there was this one account who was asking for recommendations 
for other accounts to follow. And I decided that I was just going to plug myself in there. I said, if you're looking for any public speaking accounts, follow Armani Talks. And that's when Western Mastery saw that post. And he was the first big Twitter account that was following me. And he gave me a shout out. Mm, and just like that, that's cool. I ended up getting, yeah. And just like that, I ended up getting 300 followers overnight. At this point, more accounts started to take note and they were bigger. Okay. Guys like Dylan Madden, Nate Schmidt, uh, Tanay, the science guy. Oh, I like and, Dylan Madden. He's a very cool guy. Yeah. And he was one of the first guys that shot me a DM and he was like, yo, I really like what you're doing. Keep on doing it. So that's how I started to grow my uh, Twitter account. And for me personally, I never even knew the concept of Anon before. But then I'd see different pages that never showed their face. And I believe Dylan Madden was at that time not showing his face. I believe oh, no. he had a cartoon image of himself. Maybe on Twitter, but that guy had shown his face a long time ago on his blog. Uh, okay. list. I, I could see that because he also had his uh, name as well. And I, I guess Western Mastery was Anon at that point, but I couldn't tell because his back was facing the image and he was looking down at a mountain so I, ah, yes. that, I remember when he stopped being annoying he just turned around in the same location yeah so for me harsh to answer your question uh it's been a blast because people can automatically associate what you do with who you are and there's been a few times i've been recognized where one time uh in my past job uh, a brand new interns came in and one of the guys comes up to me and he's like Yo, are you Armani Talks by any chance? I was like, yeah, uh, who are you? He's like, yo, I, I follow your account, man. I thought that was pretty cool. Another time I was at a mall and a girl came up to me and she's like, say something real quick. And I say something. And she's like, are you Armani Talks? I was like, <laughs> yeah. She's like, I listen to your podcast. So she never heard that uh, I have a Twitter page or a YouTube channel, but she heard my voice. And she saw that still image. So for me personally, Harsh, I never want to be one of these guys that's getting recognized nonstop. I'm a pretty private guy. But thus far, the way that I grow, it's hyper niched and targeted. So it's been great having my face shown. Hmm. That's interesting. And I think also for what I talk about, Harsh, the credibility of it helps as well. If I'm teaching people how to speak better, and I never show myself speaking, or I don't even have a podcast, then it hurts. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Speaking of speaking better, I hired a voice coach. Oh, congrats. Yeah, so I'm, so basically I realized something interesting, okay? I met mm -hmm. a foreigner who can speak Hindi. And, you know, because this person was originally speaking English in all his life, his Hindi sounds very accented and weird to me. Which which is, of course, like, you know, if you see any white person who can speak Hindi, that's admirable. They've learned that language. But it also sounds a little silly to a native speaker like me. And you just can't take it seriously. And then I thought, hey, if this guy can speak Hindi, but it sounds funny, silly, and unserious, you know, weird to me. I'm speaking English. 
but i'm speaking it in an indian way it probably sounds very ridiculous to all my international audience as well so i decided to fix that and the way i did that is by hiring a professional to help me correct my accent to help me speak better more fluently in a more fluish tone and i think it's working quite well i had a couple of lessons i've already stopped rolling my r every single time so i think you must have noticed me speaking a little differently today i have noticed that and you're mainly getting the voice coach uh, for accent reduction accent reduction making my voice a little deeper although we mm-hmm. are yet to get to that portion and you know just like i don't want to sound completely american because i'm not american but i do want to be i do want to get a voice that doesn't sound ridiculous and funny because if your voice sounds ridiculous to someone they can't take you seriously and i do want to be taken seriously what do you mean by ridiculous in the sense that if something sounds funny like if someone's way of speaking is amusing then your natural reaction is to just laugh and not really care what they're saying like you know if you take a child and the child is very cute whatever it says you're just going to focus on the cuteness of the kid you're not going to care what the kid is saying it's something similar to that like you're going to treat them I'm... as a foreigner like when someone like the guy who was speaking hindi to me in his english accent i was you know deep down on some subconscious level i wasn't taking him seriously and i was treating him like a foreigner like what does he know he's not even, he does he can't even speak our language properly even though it's extremely admirable that he can even speak it so i would Dude, i know exactly i know exactly what you're speaking about because whenever i speak bangla my aunties and uncles say tumi bangla ek photo kotha bolte parona which is your bangla is bad you can't speak bangla at all but they're laughing as they're saying it so i think they find it amusing whenever i speak bangla yeah it sounds like the way you found this guy amusing yeah i found this guy amusing and i just couldn't take him very seriously and then i just realized okay if i can't take him seriously even though i admire him for learning our language how can 60 70% of my audience like it, it it's definitely affecting the quality of the podcast right like it has to like unless unless i'm some kind of special snowflake it it's not it is it is doing it like it's leaving a different impression than i want so i hired well, a professional to help me with that well i have a different philosophy where i think what you're doing is admirable where you are working with a professional to work on a skill set and i also see the other part where i don't think a accent hurts someone i actually think nowadays living in the us it's one of the biggest leverage points that you have because when you have an accent it's different where no, but it does hurt you and i'll give you an example of that if you listen to my older podcasts i had a foreign friend of mine a business partner listen to my podcast without the script without the article that i was narrating and he could not understand a good 15% of it like he could not understand the word like recovered so if i say if i roll the r's i say i will say recovered recovered but an indian person will understand what i'm saying because that's how we say it 
but someone who is english or american they're not going to understand it so for them the podcast is entirely useless because they can't tell a lot of the words and then that just breaks the continuity of the thing do you get me i do get what you're saying because you're speaking about a certain quirks in the speaking pattern others can understand yeah you have to like i'm trying to make get to the point where at least everyone is able to understand me without necessarily having to look at the article while reading it it's admirable that you're taking efforts to work on this it shows that you're trying to improve different facets to you i want to be better well, than i am today i'm not perfect by any means I, if there's something can be improved it should be improved mhm where i have a friend harsh where he is one of the best dressed dudes i've ever seen he just goes out of his way uh, to dress nice and sometimes i'm thinking does he know the technical parts of it or is he just winging it and he knows how to dress like that after talking to him i found out that he did a lot of research in understanding how this works he knows about color palettes what clothes work with one but doesn't work with the other and i wanted him to teach me mm, because this guy needs harsh. to make a gumroad course yeah because if you know how to dress it just is one of the massive ways for you to build more confidence and show that you're an authority figure even without saying a word because this guy he mumbles he stutters he doesn't speak in a confident way yet when people look at him they gravitate towards him because he's dressed well and that's something that i wanted to get coached on down the line because i want to understand the technicalities of what makes a certain color work with a outfit while other colors don't work yeah that's something i would like to learn as well i hope you motivate your friend to start a twitter account and also create a gumroad course because he already has a customer here I'm going to tell him he's he's shy and this is where we're trading a skill for a skill. I said if you teach me how to dress and get a similar wardrobe look like you, then I'll teach you how to create your speech. And he said we have a deal. So I'll see if I could invite you into our group calls as well. You know, there's a life hack if you want to get a better wardrobe and that is when you go shopping, don't go shopping alone. Like take any normal girl with you and have her help you pick out clothes girls are very good at it the guys we just like okay it fits well so it looks good but girls will even like she would have no training on how a good cloth or you know how what good fashion is but she would instinctively tell you whether something looks good or not and girls are very good at it so take some normal girl with you and have her help you yeah they I've, have a intuitive sense i've heard even gay men are good at it but i don't really know any gay men so i haven't tested that yet yeah and it's not something that you just learn automatically it's where one skill builds upon the other sort of like you like learning math you're not going to know calculus if you can't even add numbers i would say with things like fashion or at least from what i know all of these girls they didn't really 
build that skill like you would build a math skill it's something they just picked up from their environment on their own well no girls have that intuitive sense i'm talking about for guys oh yeah we have to learn the formula but you know that's the thing though we can do it better once we learn how it works we can do it better you think so yeah i can give you specific examples of it too so for example women are naturally good at social skills like they are way better than men are naturally but as a guy if you put in effort and you read the books on social skills and you practice your social skills can get far superior to women's natural social skills so as a man like you can you can put in effort and learn things and get way better but your default in a, in some things are lower than women's for example women are much better at understanding people's emotions and you know figuring out where they are women are much better at fashion and you know the aesthetics of things and women are better at manipulating people and that is something yeah women are better at manipulating people for example women have evolved to essentially survive via being able to manipulate men because women are not physically strong so they have to latch onto a man they have to convince a man to give her resources and food and shelter and protection to survive so evolution has made them more cunning than the average man and i don't say that in a negative sense sometimes a lot of women use it positively like they will use their cunning and manipulation to um, get a man to improve himself sometimes and not i don't mean cunning in a negative sense i mean like in a neutral sense women are more cunning than men are like they're naturally this way evolution and nature have made it that way but a man who studies social skills can become far more cunning and socially adept than the average woman but the default is that women are higher here and to connect this with what we were talking about in the beginning where i was bringing up that book called uh, 11 rings remember that from the beginning harsh mm-hmm. where it's typically expected that when you're a great basketball player you don't often make a great coach because you don't understand how people that aren't great as you function while phil jackson was an average player along with a lot of the greatest coaches of all time they're average players yet they're technically aware and these are the guys that often make the best coaches i wonder if there is a connection with what you're saying and what i'm saying i would agree that what you have said is true because if you're a natural at something you're good at it but you don't necessarily know what you're doing to be good at it you know if you take a guy who's hot and you know already he has a lot of great social skills and you ask him for advice on women he's going to say just go talk to them and that works for him he just doesn't know the right things he's doing because he's been doing it forever or he's just doing it naturally do you get me for example if when i was learning how to not roll my r's the person teaching to me teaching it to me is also someone who had to learn it so she was able to tell me where to place my tongue and everything but someone who was doing it naturally let's take a native english speaker they don't even know they're not rolling their r's they're just doing it so how can they teach it to me 
So before I even knew the concept of rolling and not rolling hours, I could not have taught you how to roll your hours, even though every single hour that I was saying was rolled. Because you're probably unaware at that point. Yeah, I didn't even know what I was doing, what I was doing it that way. By the way, Harsh, for people who don't know what rolling and not rolling hours is, if, when you say R, this is the unrolled R, R, R. And this is how people who speak English speak. This is how English and Americans English people and American people speak. But if you take Hindi, we say R, which is a very different sound. So now when I say different, I rolled the R and without rolling the R, it'll be different. I didn't even notice you did that until you brought it up, but I do want to give you an example of what you were saying before I forget the point. So I was working with this one a business owner who had to do more videos uh, so he could create more training videos for his employees. And he was terrified of speaking into the camera and he didn't know how to do it. So him and I were working together and on one video, it was an eight minute talk and he didn't blink even once. And when I told him, Hey, you know, you didn't blink in that video, right? He's like, didn't blink. Were you watching the same video? It's impossible not to blink for eight minutes. Yeah, Trust me, I blink. And then I was like, watch the video again. And he came back and he was like, yo, I didn't blink at all. And the, and the reason I was able to spot that is because in a few of my earlier videos doing YouTube, mm-hmm. I noticed if you look right at the center of the camera, something in your head happens where you don't have to blink. And I didn't even notice I was doing it until I got a comment from someone who's like, this guy doesn't blink at all. I'm thinking, I don't blink. Of course I blink. This is a 12 minute video. (laughs) So so I started watching it back. I'm like, well, go on, blink, blink. (laughs) And I'm not blinking at all, dude. 12 12 minutes is up, not one time. And that's when I learned forever, yo, you do not look at the center of the camera. You look at the lens. And that's why I was able to spot this mistake immediately from this guy because I was looking out for it because I went through it before. Mm, That's interesting. So you didn't even notice that you weren't blinking because you would expect your eyes to start hurting, no? And watering. Like if you you try not, if you don't blink for a minute, you will start having tears in your eyes. Dude, that's what I was, harsh. That's what I was thinking as well. Yet, that's not what happened. Because when you're looking at the center of the camera, your eyes angle in a certain way where you're more focused at looking at the center rather than blinking. And you just naturally stop. Go ahead and try it out after our video. Do you have an actual camera, not a phone? I don't. I'm going to buy the GoPro 10 when it comes out. Okay, when you do, try it out for yourself and you'll notice what I'm saying. And I guarantee you, a lot of people listening to this right now is thinking, whoa, I just started recording videos. Let me look at my videos now too. Hello? Yes, Harsh. You still there? Yeah, I think we just lost connection for a second. But yeah, I mean, if you've never done it, then you won't notice these small little tweaks where others who are naturally warm and speaking in front of the camera, they're not going to even notice that this is a problem that can happen. 
And, you know, speaking to the camera is actually really hard. Like, people don't realize how difficult it is to speak to a camera. Yeah. And the thing is, it's even harder if you're not editing out the mistakes where you'll see most YouTubers, they'll take out the parts where they messed up. So they're not going from a video beginning to end in one take, which is normal. This isn't something that you should expect others to do. They're having bursts where they're speaking, that they stop, rest, they're speaking, stop, rest. But if you want to challenge yourself, I recommend you try speaking from beginning to end on one topic. You'll notice that your head is hurting, your back is getting sore, you're running out of breath, and you're working on all these different micro processes, which are going to make you a better communicator. It's one of the hardest skills out there, but I would say it's one of the most rewarding in the information age. I think, you know, if you take a lot of popular and successful politicians, this is a skill that they have mastered to be able to speak continuously, looking at a camera and a big crowd. That is really hard and people don't understand how hard it is. And that's why I think a lot of actors become successful politicians. Not just because they are already popular, that helps, but also they're very used to cameras. Yeah, and that's tying back to the point that we were talking about where you're having these interviews and it's not easy where there's sub-processes that's happening, which I'm sure you're even picking up because we're on episode eight right now and there's different problems that get presented, sort of like today where we have the technical issues and each time is it's worth learning in iterations. Yeah, you get better at things as you do them. And, you know, like, for example, if you take our conversation, our conversations are so natural that initially we thought we'll do one hour because we didn't have enough time to fit a longer podcast in because we were so busy fixing the mic and everything. And we're already two hours in and I just did not notice. It's two hours? Yeah, two hours. Whoa, it's two hours. But if this was our, if this was your first podcast and my first podcast, we would have definitely been very aware of the whole thing. Like it would not be nearly as natural or effortless. I think our shortest podcast was our first podcast. Oh, was it? How how long was that? I think it was one hour fifty five minutes. Let me check because I remember it was almost two hours, but we didn't make that mark afterwards let me just double check yeah one hour one hour 55 minutes Mm, that's good it's a skill especially conversing with two people where you have to notice what this person is saying and this person can maybe bring up a topic that you weren't even expecting and now you need to recalibrate or if the other person asks you a question and now you have to think of something on top of the feet. That's why I give you respect for doing these interviews. And I'm sure that you're going to inspire more anonymous accounts in the future to start doing interviews as well. Do you know, I think it's easy for me simply because you are so skilled at the whole conversation thing. For example, like if you take our podcast, it's usually you who drives the conversation, like you pick topics and you know, when to switch and when to ask a question, etc. So I would say that 
your experience with public speaking and the fact that you are so good at social skills makes this podcast far better than it would have been had we both been untrained. That's true. That's a good point that you brought up. And often so I'm surprised that... I admire your social skills and how much you've developed as a person and how good of a communicator you are. But people don't understand. Like, people think this is effortless for you. But I bet that it took you a long time to get here. For example, if you take our podcast, it's usually you asking me a question, me giving my take. But then I'm not asking you a question back. You're effortlessly putting your take in there without making it sound abrupt, which takes effort and practice. It does. And I'm surprised that you've noticed that. And it shows me that you're someone that's technically aware of what it takes to pick up a conversation. Because someone that's a natural wouldn't have been able to spot that. They would have been like, oh, this is what everyone does, isn't it? But you were able to spot and make that analysis. I am definitely not a natural. I was always very extroverted. Like if you do the big five tests, I come at like 96, 97% extroversion. But I was never so natural at uh, speaking. Like I was very good at making friends always, but I was never a captivating speaker, so to speak. What about do you? Most no. So for me, I had uh, I have an older brother who would normally speak up for me when we were kids, and that's how it was for most of our lives. And he would speak up and I would be the better listener. But as time started to go on by and we started to, you know, have different grades, he was in middle school while I was in elementary school. He was in high school while I was in middle school. I started to see that I needed to work on my speaking skills as well. So for me personally, Toastmasters was a big game changer for me. And even though that club does have some flaws, One thing that it helped me with, Harsh, was that it just showed me that speaking is a skill set. If you train it like an athlete, you will get better. And I had different mentors in the club who gave me frameworks that I could learn from. And then I took those frameworks and I made it a thing of my own. I would say one of the best things for me was not being a natural. How so? Anything for that matter. How does not being a natural help you? Because it makes you actively seek out knowledge where now you understand the technical parts and you notice these small things that others would not have a clue of. Where, one example, have you ever had that one problem, Harsh, where you're running out of breath as you're speaking? Yeah, I have that often. And immediately, one of the first things that a person will say is that, this is a problem, which it is. However, I have a different mindset regarding it. Normally, a person is running out of breath more when they are creating more. Uh, Typically, in conversations, there's two groups of people that are there. There are creators and contributors. And more often than not, people are wearing those two different hats at the same time. When you're creating more than the average person, not only are you Physically speaking, your mental faculties are getting engaged as well, which requires your breathing patterns to adjust and it requires more work. And 
I made a video about this, by the way. I'll go ahead and link it in the description box right on below. It's called Shortness of Breath Speaking, Armani Talks, if you're listening for podcast, and it's available on YouTube. But that detailed analysis of creators and contributors is not going to be picked up by someone who's a natural. What's the difference so for, between a creator and a communicator? So the creator has to consistently think of the topics and then they have to present it, articulate it, while contributors typically will give two cents in. And oftentimes these hats are going to defer. Where right now you're asking me a question about why not being a natural was a good thing. But when a person is being a creator more often than not, their body has to adjust as well. So this is a moment where your thoughts have to get readjusted with your speaking patterns. And that's why it's a good problem at times when you're running out of breath, because it's a growing pains sign that you're graduating from being a person who just contributes to now creating as well. Hmm. I would say that that some people just don't know how to breathe properly. And I used to be one of them, where I would just take shallower breaths while speaking and I would just run out of breath. So the second part of that video, Harsh, was what you just mentioned, where someone's like, well, I'm not a creator. I'm still a contributor, yet I'm running out of uh, breathing uh, breathing uh, rhythms. And that's when I give an example of the workout masks. Have you ever seen those workout masks that a person wears to make it harder to breathe? No, I haven't even heard of the concept. But nowadays, you know, everyone's wearing a mask, so I probably understand what you're trying to tell me. I see some people wearing those workout masks outside and people will be like, are you wearing a mask? It's like, look at it. <laughs> I think uh, Chronicles of Nate was doing that. Is it healthy to wear a mask though? Because aren't you depriving your body oxygen, especially when you're working out? Well, that's the point, Harsh, where you're making it difficult for yourself to breathe. It's not as though that you're cutting off all circulation. It just makes it a tad bit more difficult. And as it's more difficult you'll notice your breathing patterns adjusting. Once you take the mask off, you'll notice that it's much easier to speak. The words just sort of flow out of you. So I'm going to drop a link for a workout mask that I recommend in the description box. And I recommend trying it out. If you're working out heavily, which I'm sure you are, you got the squat game on point, uh, try it out with a mask and you'll notice that it's changing your voice as well. I would... I would caution people doing this though, because I I can't possibly imagine a scenario where I'm lifting heavy or doing something that exerts me and wearing a mask because then you're just breathing in the carbon dioxide and that can't possibly be good for you. I think a better solution would probably be something like learning singing. Well, I wouldn't recommend uh, an intense activity harsh then, but... If you're working out, define workout. What do you mean by that? Because when I think of workouts, I mean like I'm squatting heavy weights or deadlifting or jogging maybe or doing cardio or something like that. Yeah, yeah, jogging is fine. I try it out with a mask. You'll notice it's not suffocating you. Oh, it's no, no, don't do that with a mask. Yeah. I think it's not good for you. You're breathing the carbon dioxide back in. It It, it is not well, good for you. It might make your voice better, but it's not good for your health. Don't do that. The workout mask? Yeah, working out with a mask is not good for you. 
Just learn, learn, get, get a singing teacher. Or or it is, it is. It's not good for you. <laughs> you're like, you're, don't even try. Um, no, I know that Arsh, because I, uh, when I was researching masks last year, when they were making it mandatory, I was trying to figure out whether this is actually healthy for people or not. And it turns out it's not. And even in children, like you wear a mask for three years, four minutes, and their blood oxygen levels start to decline. Okay, Harsh. Um, let me think about, well, I'm actually Googling right now. Um, Harsh, I think this is going to be something that we're going to disagree on. Where no, I think I've done it myself. Like, let, me, let me check this just a second. I don't, I, I just want to be sure about what I'm saying. Just go on, go on Amazon, type in workout masks for gym. And I don't, I don't think it's bad for you, Harsh, where if you've done your research, I mean, I wouldn't recommend you try it out, but I have tried it out before, and it's not something that was out of the ordinary for me. I even did this while I was doing P90X. Okay, so apparently I'm looking at a website called Apollo 247, which is a popular hospital here in India. And working out with a mask is not good for you because it, it can cause you dehydration, dizziness, lightheadedness, and even heart problems. And also the sweat makes the mask wet. And that makes, you know, it causes bacteria and everything to grow on the mask, which you're breathing in. And, you know, when you have a wet mask, it's also blocking in more air. And the other thing is wearing a mask. I'm just quoting the article here. Wearing a mask can exercising could potentially cause accumulation of carbon dioxide and in some cases may stimulate the same effect of altitude training although to a lesser level this can be problematic for people with underlying health conditions so i i I don't know for sure that's what it says and that's what my own research says so i i would not in good faith at least i cannot recommend anyone exercise while wearing a mask yeah, Harsh. I, I do think, though, this could be said virtually about anything where someone, for example, with squats, if they have a health issue, then, you know, you could find an article on uh, different things like that. I could but, not do heavy squats with a mask on. I just need I need to breathe to get the Vitalva man, maneuver set in. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that you do like intense workouts to like the point of collapse, but I don't think where a a workout which is causing for your heartbeat to rise a little bit faster, plus in addition to a mask, is going to be detrimental. And I'm I'm not saying, like, quote me on this, but I have tried it, and I have seen other people try it as well, where they're fine. And, you know, I I do think, like, if you do the right research, you're going to find different things, articles, which say that this particular thing is not good for you. You know, you'll find something like that on weightlifting as well, where people with health just, issues. I'm, I'm just trying you know to think of it like from a critical perspective, and at least from how I think of it, is that the mask is blocking oxygen, and you need the oxygen when you're working out. So wearing a mask is not a smart idea. That's how I'm thinking. Although maybe it doesn't like, collapse I all of it. So. What? It, it doesn't block the entire oxygen. But it does it block just creates it, right? a. It just creates a small filter, yes. No, but when you breathe out, you're not breathing out all the carbon dioxide. So when I'm wearing a regular mask, okay, like a COVID three-ply mask, what happens is that when I'm breathing out, the air isn't flowing freely out of away from me. 
it gets stuck near the mask and i'm repeatedly breathing the same air like at least a portion of it is i'm repeatedly breathing it and that's that, there's no way that's good like i at least i can't think of how that can be good for me like i understood that there was a pandemic and that's why it was mandatory but i don't mm-hmm. see how it can be good for my health to wear this so at least i would say that if you're going to wear at least the, to the people listening if you're going to wear a mask while working out this is not the life math money recommendation is the hormonal talk recommendation <laughs> <laughs> no and that's that's good uh, harsh where we can disagree on certain things and i believe that adds more depth to this podcast where we don't always agree on the same things mm-hmm. see if we were both uh, agreeing on everything then one of us is not necessary for the podcast yeah and it's good when there are healthy debates harsh where you get to see two sides of something and also you see different methods of doing something where others can eventually decide for themselves because we've said it ourselves where we never want to consider ourselves a gurus or people that tell others how to hey do this and this is the only way to do it we're uh, two people that are you know learning along the way and that's what adds depth to this podcast difference of beliefs i definitely agree although arman i have to get going now in like 5 minutes so we need to end the podcast today okay uh we ended up going well over an hour yeah well over an hour and it's getting really late here i need to get sleep okay harsh any last words before we wrap this one up nothing in particular like do your own research on the mask thing though Yes, for sure. Do your own research and if you're thinking about trying it out, I'm going to drop my recommendation that I use in the description box right on below. And other than that, Harsh, oh, I will drop way, all... for someone who is actually suffering from the breathing issues, my recommendation is to learn singing. Because singing is really about, you know, you get a lot of control over your vocal cords and your breath and things of that sort. So that will fix your breathing issues while speaking. I think so. Yes, uh singing is great and you know that wasn't the only recommendation I gave in the video with the masks. Another advice I gave which uh, you know from our conversations it doesn't seem like you're a fan of, but I said do yoga where yoga done correctly causes you to hold your posture in certain fixed states which require you to control your breathing to hold the correct posture. So you'll see different yoga practices on YouTube or you could do P90X which will help you tremendously. What's that? And what's that? A P90X is a workout program where in 90 days you get to I uh, you get a workout program given to you and you try it out and it works whether you're trying to bulk or whether you're trying to cut. Especially if you're someone that's a novice in fitness, uh, these are a few trained people that will give you a workout plan, diet, all of that. So mm. Yeah and the yes yeah, a 90 day program and the new models only have uh 25 minute workouts so it's useful and it gets you athletic in shape um yeah so other than that harsh thank you very much for joining the podcast and my friend let's pick it up next time likewise arman it's always good talking to you and i've learned a lot as usual so have a good day to you too take care